it's quite emotional being here because um, this place holds a special place in my heart. And looking out across people that I know who have embodied radical humility in their life, professors, students, leaders here that have embodied radical humility that have discipled me. And now that the world has seen, (laughs) it is um, very humbling to be home. For those that I don't know, g'day, I'm Rob. (laughs) I've got my alumni Bible in hand, proud alumni Bible. I don't dare to highlight this one, by the way, because uh, because it is an alumni Bible. But... um, <laughs> Might have to come back again and get another one. <laughs> but incredibly grateful to be here. And most importantly, I'm a fellow brother in Christ with all of you. But as you can imagine, being a bloke that's traveled, you know, what, 16,000 kilometers to be here in Wilmore, Kentucky. I came here in 2018. Um, you get asked a lot of questions, right? You might. For those of you that have journeyed from Kentucky or from, I don't know, where are you from, Mary Beth? Indiana. Okay, from Indiana. Yeah, that's, that's, that's far. That's a couple of hours drive. But Australia? <laughs> <laughs> you, you get asked questions. Yeah? <laughs> you don't walk around without getting a question. And if I had to compile a list of the most frequently asked questions I get here, this would be it, okay? No, no offense, man. I, I say this authentically. Probably top on the list would be, have you been bitten by a spider or a snake before? <laughs> Always. It's like there's snakes and spiders everywhere in Australia, this perception, right? Um, like Steve Irwin's running around everywhere. <laughs> the second question that I get asked a lot, especially when I'm down in, um, down in um, Callis Village with all the kids running around, they look at me glowingly and they, they ask with like um, emotion and it's beaming from their face, do you live where Bluey lives? <laughs> and... and <laughs> They, they authentically believe that Bluey is just like running around everywhere. Like how the adults think Steve Irwin's running around everywhere. <laughs> but not far behind any of those questions is one that I think will be familiar with all of you. That is the question of what is your calling? Is, is that a fair statement? You've been asked that question before? I'm sure all the administrators, professors that have gone through seminary before, this would have been the question they they ask you. Not just simply here in seminary, but even outside, especially when you go back for holidays. What is your calling? Where's God leading you? What are you doing? It is the question that many of us are searching to answer, aren't we? Akin to the meaning of life, one that we invest in with special devotion to search for its answer. And it's during our years in seminary, in particular, where this question is featured super prominently because we are a community called. That's what we are. Thus, as though we are driving, right, with one eye navigating the activity of our, in theological study, IBS, missiology, we have another eye set on answering this question. What is my calling? It's in the back of our minds. But when we ask ourselves this question, we usually can constrain it to something a little bit tighter. What what is our vocational calling? So we pray about it as good seminarians. We fast about it. We discuss it with mates, church mentors. In fact, we may have decided to even come to seminary, this place, to discern it. Searching for our calling. 
to achieve it, to pursue it. And without us even being aware, this term calling, which is a verb because a calling has to have a caller, gradually shifts from being a verb, that is something that's spoken to us, to a noun. Specifically marked with possession. My calling. And we obsess about it. We feel this urgent need to understand it as time ticks by. Every year in seminary, what's it going to be? I've invented this term. I call it calling FOMO. <laughs> you, you resonate with that? We have calling FOMO. You know, even after you have that next, next career, you still have calling FOMO. Where's it going to go next? Our poor Stevens, he calls this guidance mania. The fear of not being in the center of God's will. And whilst discerning our vocational calling, look, it's a good and proper thing to do, we humans are great at doing one thing. We're experts at distorting something which is good. Especially about making it about us. So when we're at seminary, notwithstanding the faith commitment many of us have made to come here, there is this temptation to elevate my calling to be at superhero-esque levels, isn't it? Furthermore, our home church and our faith communities may even boast about our decision to pursue this thing called the calling. Showponing us as the model Christian, using our commitment to respond to God's calling as the model example. Look at Benjamin. Look at Mary Beth. Oh, David. Oh. You know what I'm talking about. So what happens is we start to get puffed up about this thing called the calling, don't we? then during our time at seminary, it may become convenient to simply think of our season here as a way to attain the qualifications, to be granted pathways and opportunities for the purpose of helping us to attain this thing called my calling. I don't know, any, any K-pop followers here? Uh, you won't put your hand up for that. I know Dr. Steve Siemens is, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's akin to that, isn't it? The infamous, infamous K-pop factory, where they get people in put them into the schools, manufacture them into the next pop star. Prior to moving to the USA, I used to work in the banking industry, and this objectification of my calling reminded me of a financial process that we used to be involved in all the time, a term and a process called commoditization. Can you say commoditization? commoditization. A lot of words to it. We like long words in finance. The process of taking something what it is, is the process of taking something without any economic value and turning it into a standardized, value-creating, transactable object. Commoditization. And during my career as a banking executive, I witnessed the industry move obsessively in this direction, especially in the years leading up to the 2008 global financial crisis, as we sought to commoditize everything. If it can make money out of it, if it can transact it, commoditize it. Even bankrupt people, let's commoditize it. Everything, commoditize it. Why? Because society demands more. More money, more assets, more control, more ownership, more power. And as we now know, this obsession to commoditize things led to one of the greatest financial disasters since the Great Depression. Commoditization. In our market-orientated world, we are obsessed with seeing things commoditized, anything and everything that can be turned into an object for transactable purposes is commoditized. Think about it right now. Everyone's talking about AI, right? Effectively, you're commoditizing decision-making. Commoditize it, revert it back to a robot that can tell us a decision. 
Think about um, dating and relationships right now. The whole relationship thing has been commoditized. Hook up, casual sex culture is commoditized. Think about the way that we embody and look at things such as uh, Facebook and social media. Data, our personal information is now commoditized. Why? We love something that can be transacted because it's simple, it's efficient, it's convenient, it's low commitment, it's low bar. It's a low bar. Easy to get something. Why would I go about trying to get all the ingredients, all the uh, tools and resources required to build something complex? We're kind of going to just go and get it, transact it, and get it and receive it straight away. Immediacy. Efficiency. In fact, some would argue that there is this unhealthy strain of our very own Christian faith being treated as a commodity at times. A transaction for convenient salvation, believing we can purchase Jesus by adhering to a low bar apathetic Christian by name mentality where whole of life is swapped with just a tithe. A faith that does not involve picking up one's cross as it is inconvenient to my life goals and instead sitting for Christian by name religion. Everyone filled out a census before? Got a tick religion? I call this tick a box Christianity. Put simply, our pure endeavors to respond to God's calling can easily be hijacked by my, by your own agenda, where the verb form of calling, i.e. God calling us, has been replaced with the possessive noun form of calling, my calling. And without us even realizing it, our calling, my calling, your calling, begins to be influenced by these market forces, the forces of commoditization, as it turns into an object. I'm not one that can talk about this in a glowing way. Because before I came to seminary, I was deemed to be the model young leader in church. Had the career, had the salary, had the status, had the power, got to do those news reports on TV talking about the home loan market. But there's more. I was the bat doing the Batman thing. Banker by day, preacher by night. I would preach glowingly, loving the adoration. I will go there preaching messages of holiness, and even though people would absorb what I said, I was hypocritically calling them to a life of holiness when I did not even do it myself. Why? Because I had forgot who had called me. And instead, I had commoditized my calling akin to an object shown off to another for the purpose of benefiting me. My calling was simply another goal to achieve a certificate on the wall, a resume filler, a career objective for my benefit. My calling had become a commodity with utilitarian value for none other than me. Bring it on, Jesus. What are the markers of a commoditized calling? Firstly, a commoditized calling seeks to be compared. This is innate to being a commodity, right? Because commodities demand us to look for what sets them apart from one another. I want you to think about the last time you went to Walmart or Kroger or wherever it was, and you're going in the milk section. Milk is milk, right? But no, not in America. <laughs> I, I was amazed how much milk you have here. 2% milk, 1% milk, half and half milk, normal milk, skim milk. Even your nuts have milk, right? You got cashew milk, <laughs> almond milk. I never knew 
as cashews had udders, but in America they do, all right? <laughs> but think about it, milk is milk. <laughs> Maybe it's a bad illustration for this country. Milk is milk. <laughs> but every milk brand demands for your attention. It vies for your attention, and it's marketed in a certain way to differentiate itself from other milk brands. I teach business over there, you know what we call this in economics and finance. We'll say this then leads to something that we want in the markets called competition because it drives efficiency. You want to encourage that in markets. In the same way, when we commoditize calling, we intrinsically compare our calling with others, looking for various features, bells, and whistles associated with it, like shopping for a car and crudely comparing ourselves even to the point of competition. One of my convictions for those that know me is for saints in the marketplace. And the reason I feel so called to this group is I feel they, we, I, have a reduced view on calling. Subscribing to this imaginary thing called the holiness hierarchy. And thus devaluing their work, believing it is not sacred, and worse still, they prescribe to a position that their ministry is reduced to being mere ATM machines for the church. Why does this occur? Because we commoditize callings and view pastors, theologians, missionaries like myself, pastor from Australia, as having more currency than everyone else. Thus we manufacture a divide born out of comparison. We who are leaders in the church feel the other way, that in comparison to those in the marketplace, we are holier than thou. Because I've answered the calling. You don't have the calling, I've answered the calling. The second marker of a commoditized calling is to seek to draw attention to itself. As noted earlier, part and parcel of commodities is that they demand attention, and that is why they are marketed it, Right? I'll teach you some Australian terms right now, all right? I won't charge you for this. Back home in Australia, we have this saying. Very easy. It's only two letters in the word. Oi! Can you say oi? Have you heard that thing at the Olympics and stuff where the Aussies go, Aussie, 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 and then everyone says, oi, oi, oi. Have you heard that? All right, there you go. Well, oi is affectionately known in our war cries and our chants in Australia. But you know what? It's also used in another way when you disagree with something and you want to draw attention to yourself. So in Australia, we play this game called real football. Um, we would <laughs> I, I, they're like, let's not invite that guy back. He's always slamming our milk, our football. <laughs> um, we play this game called real football. And, uh, where we don't have helmets. And we run, it's called Australian football. It's not rugby, by the way. And you run around, you kick, there's people running around everywhere. And you know what? There's always umpire controversies, aren't there? You know what I'm talking about? So there's always this moment where somebody does something and then the umpire doesn't see it and it's like, oi! How, how's that not a penalty, mate? You're blind as a dingbat. What's going on, mate? That's what you do because you want to draw attention to yourself, right? Because you see yourself as in an even higher position. You try to vie for their attention. You call it, as my kids like to say it, look at me, dad, look at me mentality. In fact, have you noticed that the product and markers of this world continue to scream out, oi? They eagerly compete for your attention in order to outdo one another. And in the same way, when we commoditize our callings, 
after we have compared it with others and come to the conclusion, hey, I've got more to offer than them, then we attempt to draw attention to ourselves. Oi! What about me? Look at me. Another attribute of a commoditized calling is that it favors control. Commodities by nature need to be manufactured, right, and demand greater levels of management control. Think about any new industry when it begins. It drives and it creates stuff based on innovation and creativity, right? But then you recognize this thing sells, this product sells. So what you want to do is you want to commoditize it. Commoditize it means you add more controls. You add quality assurance. You invest more money just to make widgets, just to turn them around faster and faster so you can do more because that's what the market rewards. The market rewards more. Interestingly, when we observe our callings, have you noticed we tend to also view those which have a higher level of output quality and productivity as being better than those that are less productive? To put it bluntly, the more limelight I get, the more people I serve, the more books I write, the more that I read, the bigger my budget, the more I control, the bigger my population, my congregation equates to a high calling. Look, like financial markets, we are equally bound by the old adage, more is better and thus gravitate towards this market-like growth mindset. I've subscribed to that. If I had to confess, I still am tempted by that. Let's turn to our Bibles in Luke 10, 38 to 42, the passage that was read out by Mary Bear. And in this passage, we get presented with a picture of something that does not fit the grid of commoditization. Unlike the way that the markets promote comparison, attention, and control, Jesus appears to decommoditize calling, reminding us of what is good. Here we're presented with the story of Jesus being invited into the home of Martha, who is the host and patron. Wonderful, inviting the Lord in. And we are immediately introduced to another silent character named Mary who does not appear to say anything in this passage and is pictured seated at Jesus' feet. Yeah, not, note simply, she wasn't simply described as sitting at Jesus' feet. Notice the term there. She was seated at Kyrios, the Lord's feet. Whilst this may conjure up images of Mary being, you know, in a position of like fawning and um, adoration and just kind of not doing anything... Maybe think about it in terms of a student and a disciple, learning, listening intently to the words of the Lord. In contrast, Martha was distracted. And to get a better understanding of distracted, the word also conveys a sense of being drawn away due to busyness, as if she wanted to be with her Lord, yet felt obliged to do, to achieve, to produce. Does it sound familiar? And what was she drawn away by? She was drawn away by her, my, preparations, by her diaconia, which interestingly is the same word for ministry. And in a state of frustration, she addresses Jesus, Oi, Lord, she probably didn't say oi, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all this preparation ministry myself? Tell her to help me. Notably, Martha does not address Mary, but I could imagine her, we've done this before, raising her voice just enough for Jesus to hear, but hoping Mary also indirectly hears. Oi, Jesus, and in brackets, Mary, 
Look at me and all I'm doing. Martha is in a state of comparison as she sees Mary simply sitting at the Lord's feet while she is doing so much, controlling so much, producing so much, to the point that her originally good and hospitable act of service is encroached upon by the forces of commoditization. Unfortunately, this is how many callings begin and end up, where an invitation for Jesus to come in, even in recognition of his lordship, gradually becomes drowned out by the noises of my own preparation and ministry. And then we see Jesus respond. Martha, Martha. It's like a gentle rebuke, like like a little bit like, reminds me of um, Acts, Saul, Saul. You were worried and upset about many things. And notably, the concept of worry is that it can be directed towards others or it can be directed towards oneself. Any callous parents over here, callous village parents? Okay, you can, uh, those that can ride bikes now, you can vouch for this. I worry. I worry when my kid gets on the bike and in that massive hill in Callas Village and they ride down it without a helmet. That causes me parental worry about my child, right? But also at times, I can be worried about my own things, my own interests, as anxiety and trouble center on my needs. Worry is the warm-up and expectation of an even greater unease. Yet in this situation, as Martha is burdened by preparation by ministry, instead of comforting her, Jesus calls out her condition. Instead of obliging her request to address Mary to help, he instead addresses Martha and her worries. But few things are needed, Martha, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Interestingly, the term to describe what Mary has chosen can also denote her obtaining a portion. That while Martha was perhaps preparing portions of food for her Lord, in contrast, Mary was feasting off better portions, more joyful portions from her Lord. Whilst Martha was increasingly worried, troubled, and distracted by her own commoditized calling to serve portions to Jesus, Mary was distracted by the joyful portion she received from Jesus. And what she was chosen, she has chosen, will not be taken from her. Sisters and brothers, whilst we face the pressure to conform to a world that sees no conceivable limit in the activity of commoditization, even in the realm of faith, whilst we face the temptation to view the calling God has called us to as an object to be pursued for self-gain and careerism, whilst we face the pressure to perform and subscribe to the market-obsessed culture's desire for output, efficiency, performance, and productivity, may we be reminded of our first and foremost calling, the callous calling upon our life. Your time here at Asbury Seminary is precious. There were many times right up here where the Lord was circumcising my heart, getting the Egypt out of me. And this is a gift. It's a God-given season for discernment, for spiritual vitality, for theological enrichment as you press on as a community called for the calling God has before you. Yet may we never forget the foremost calling we have on our lives, that we are a people called out to be disciples of the Lord, at his feet, feasting on the portion he gives us, 
In fact, even the name church, ecclesia, literally means called out people, called to belong to Jesus Christ, called to be saints, called according to his purpose, called to be holy, heavenward, called to salvation, called to hope so that we may live a life worthy to which we have been called, Ephesians 4.1. Our vocational calling, yes, it is important, yet it is a response to his calling to fulfill his purposes through the church, through the ecclesia, the called out to the world. I want us to imagine, what would the church look like if it lived up to its name as a called out people? How potent would the church be if it was in a posture, a full and utter surrender of our own goals and ambitions, of our commoditized callings offered all to Jesus? Not potency in the eyes of the market, which demands bigger and better, but a potency that carries the potency of Philippians 2. That in contrast to the world, the power was not inherent in how much that could be done, but the power was in how much he could lower himself in full surrender to the will even to the point of crucifixion. A power that is made perfect in weakness. You know, as I was sharing about the Asbury outpouring to people in Australia during summer, it was, it was hard to share it because I know that the faith in my country has been going down when I've been going to countries in Asia and seeing things there and sharing about the outpouring and seeing remnants that bow and get onto their knees, believing in the power of prayer, not of anything they have, not of any resources they have like what we have here, but simply because they cling on that they are simply disciples of Jesus. It saddens me because of the state of the church, but also gives me hope. And you know, the power that this remnant has in these parts of the world is that they're in full and utter surrender to the Lord. And you know what gives them hope is that they see an institution here that we are blessed to be part of that has so much, recognizing that its power is not in what it has, but its power is what it can give up. The Lord has called you here. Not to pursue a calling, but to hear his soft, gentle voice of the caller's calling a call to discipleship, a call to receive the full portion, a call to surrender, a call, as we've been saying over the road over here during February, radical humility, a call that says no to the commoditization forces of the world and yes to something that is less than, less than in the eyes of the world, but all in the eyes of the Lord. I'm not saying we don't pursue a calling, but what I'm saying is in everything we do, we magnify one name alone. And there's not ourselves and what we do, but in Christ alone. And in this time, as the world's attention, admittedly, it is on the Asbury's, I pray that we will envelop that true meaning of what we are as a community called, not as a calling, but a group of people that hears the call is calling. I sense some of us here may be in a need of um, the Lord may be doing something in our hearts. And know that this altar is open or where you are. To a posture of, again, Lord, I surrender my calling to you. That is not my calling, but I want to hear your voice once more. 
I want to hear the caller's calling. As you, the altar is open. For those of you, some of us may be in a position of just wanting to control what happens next, admittedly worried about the next step of what happens when we get out of seminary. I invite you to submit that to the Lord. All these things will be given unto you. But submit to the feet of the Lord, hearing his voice and not your own. Some of you may be worried about things that are simply transactional in nature. And again, please don't compare yourself with others calling in a fit of jealousy or anger directed towards the living God. But may we be submitted at the feet of Jesus, hearing his still small voice. Right after the story of Mary and Martha, the Lord, someone asked, teach us to pray. And I love the first word that comes out. It says, our Father. Father has a son, has a daughter. The other side of fatherhood. Is that what we are called to? To be children of God once more not obsessing about what we do, obsessing about who we are. There's no comparison because we're all sons and daughters of the living God. Praise be to his name. The altar is open.